Open your Bibles to Genesis 1, 27, okay? And that's where we're going to start. We're gonna, and we're going to move through. We're going to take a passage out of Genesis 1 and a passage out of Genesis 2. So passage, Genesis 1, 27. Let me read it for you, okay? So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply. The earth and subdue it with the dominion over fish and over sea and over the birds of heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then move to chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper proper for him or fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall over man while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And he said, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of me. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and the wife were both naked and were not ashamed. There is so much packed into that passage that it's just kind of scary. Because in that passage, in the context of issues that our current society and culture is struggling with, is marriage the dignity of women, the glass ceiling, so to speak, or equality of women, gender, and not that this passage talks about it, but this passage is dealing with the issues that are happening around locker rooms and bathrooms and vocabulary. This happens more, I think, on college campuses. Anymore with the context of different genders, it's no longer just Miss MS or Mr. MR, but now it is considered appropriate to have MX if you're unsure, if you have a gender other than Mr. or Mrs. So vocabulary, it touches even on that. And all these issues that it touches on that is current and relevant and being debated in our culture today. This morning, we're going to take the bold move to shed some of God's light on these issues. So let's look at the text, verse 27 of chapter 1. So God created man in his own image. God created man in his own image. Man and woman were born this way, as opposed to the current popular songs. Man and woman were born this way, as male and female. They did not evolve from anything else, as some scientists would say. God handmade them as fully grown male and female. God handmade you. And it says not only that he handmade you, because it would be one thing to make a doll the way you would want a doll to be. But it says that it went further and he placed his image in man and woman. No other aspect of creation can claim that. No other. Psalm 19, 1 through 5 says that the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they, they make him known. They speak without sound or word. Their voice is, is, their voice is never heard, yet their message has gone throughout the earth. 
and their words to all the world. Isn't that interesting? Their voice is never heard, but their words go to all the world. The heavens declare the glory of God, but those heavens, as much as they declare the, the heavens, the oceans, the mountains, the valleys, the stars, the birds, the fish, the animals, the, the flowers, the trees, the insect life, they reflect his creativity, but not his image. Only mankind does that. And note that in regard to the dignity of a woman and her equality before God, both man and woman equally reflect his image. The point that we're going to make throughout the course of this in regards to womanhood and the equality of the woman and, and the place for a woman in our culture and in society, you have to just keep noticing that in the context of him making woman, he never diminished her. But in the context of like that she is a full representative of his image just like man is, his image was not put into her any less than it was put into him. But she received it equally. What does it mean to be made in God's image? First of all, we have the ability to be in relationship with God, and no other part of creation can do that. He is in relationship with himself, and he is in relationship with us, and he's given us that same ability. And it's within that context of relationship, that kind of relationship, where the main thing that happens there is this, this communication of love and compassion. We have um, personality, moral and spiritual qualities that, God and we, that we share with God. A self-consciousness, a God-consciousness. We have freedom, we have responsibility, we have speech, we have moral discernment. And all of these distinguish us from the animals and all other creation. Although animal life has a consciousness, they do not have a God consciousness. Only we have that. As image bearers of the creator of the universe, we represent him. And perhaps the best explanation I read was that we are, we, it said like, we are like living symbols of God placed on earth to represent his reign. Think about that. We are living symbols, having his image on us, being created in his image. We are living symbols of God placed on earth to represent his reign. That is in some small way what it means to be in his image. And it very much ties into something we've talked about a couple of times recently, where we are ambassadors of Christ. We speak for him. We represent him and not our own words or values or anything else like that. So God created male and female to represent him. Note, in verse 31 of that passage, everywhere else as he's created something, he says, and it was good. But what does it say in verse 31? It was very good. Not just good, but it was very good. Flip over to chapter 2, verse 18 now. Adam is a solitary man. He's standing in his field now and naming the animals. When Daniel was captured, what was the first thing his captors did to him when they brought him out of Israel? What's the first thing they did to him? Gave him a different name. He went from being called Daniel. In chapter 1, verse 7 of Daniel, this is the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. And to Daniel, he was assigned the name Belshazzar. I like Daniel a lot more, personally. 
It was commonplace in ancient history to rename things you had conquered. It was commonplace to, that when you named something, you exercised dominion over it. You were its sovereign. And so you see here that when God says, this is all of creation, exercise dominion over it. And the next thing, or one of the things you see is Adam naming creation. He was sovereign over it. He was exercising dominion over it. And that's really interesting that after naming all the animals, for however long that took, can you imagine? I don't really know how long that takes. And then I have another question that I don't have an answer for. So, you know, you have to... I can see how he would name all the, all the birds and all the animals, but I'm just curious about those fish. I don't know how that happens. So here he is. He has just named all the animals. And it's really interesting. Look at the passage. Look what it says here. Let me flip back to it. Now, out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called them, every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. The phrase seems to, the way it's stated is that he's just watched all these animals come before him. And it seems to imply that they even might have come through as male and female, and there he is, just him. And it says, so he's just named all the animals. He's like going, there's only me. And it says there's no suitable helper to be found for him. That word helper, let's talk about that. Because in the context of our current culture, there are so many times that I've sat down with a young couple to do premarital counseling, and we get to that topic, role and responsibility in marriage. And I'll have a young woman, and I'll just say, do we have a problem in this area here that that we should talk about? Do I need to know about it? Is this a topic that's going to be difficult for you? And it's not uncommon to say, yeah, I'm not really cool with that. And that's great. Let's talk about it. Because there's this concept that helper is a subservient, secondary, inferior person to someone else. And yet, in the context of what the word means, helper, it does not mean servant. Jesus Christ uses the same word for himself in the Greek as is meant here in the Hebrew for the Holy Spirit. When he talks about the Holy Spirit in John 14, uh, in John 15, John 16, he uses the same exact word as helper. And in essence, you think about that. He is talking about himself now. He is talking about the other part of his identity, which is the Holy Spirit. So he's not talking about, no, there's another part of me. It's not really that important. All they're here to do is to do what I tell them to do. You don't have to pay that much attention to them. They're kind of subservient to me. Eh, They're not really that important. It's just a helper. He doesn't address the Holy Spirit like that at all. Instead, he speaks of great honor and great value in what the helper, the Holy Spirit, brings to the table in the context of everything that's going to happen next. You note here about that helper, the Holy Spirit, the helper is equivalent, equal to Christ. And yet it has an entirely different job. It has an entirely different role and purpose than Christ does. And so here he is as the Holy Spirit. And he is not secondary to Christ. He is equivalent 
to Christ, but with an entirely different role and function. Something equally as important, but different than Him. And so when we talk about women or wives being helpers to the husbands, we're not talking about anybody that is subservient. We're talking about somebody who is equally important with a different role and function in that relationship. And not only that, but also God uses it to even describe himself in Psalms 33 and in in Psalm 70 that he is a helper to those he loves. The word help suggests, let me just read this to you, the quote. The word help suggests that man has this governmental, this, this priority in the context of role and everything. But it doesn't mean that they, but it says that they are mutually dependent upon each other. The word helper used for God 16 of the 19 times appears in the Old Testament, and it signifies the woman's essential contribution, not inadequacy. Suitable to him or corresponding to him, however your translation says to it, means equal and adequate. What was true of Adam was also true of Eve. They both had the same nature. She was comparable to him in the contrast to the rest of the created world. She was just like him. God created us in his image as male and female. And that implies equality of personhood, equality of dignity, of mutual respect, of harmony, of of being complementary to each other. Equality of personhood means that a person or a man is not less than a person than a woman. And because he has hair on his chest and she doesn't, they are equal in their personhood, and their differences don't change their equality. They don't change their value. Their role or their responsibility does not make one more important than the other. And yet what we find when they're together, they really complement and fit well. Equality of dignity means that they are to be equally honored as humans in the image of God. Peter says in 1 Peter 2 that, that we are to honor all. That is, all people, all humanity. And there is an honor to be paid to persons simply because they are humans. There is, an, there is even an honor that we owe to the most despicable of criminals. There is an honor that we owe to those we disagree with, which is a rare quality among us these days. And I'm not even talking about politics I'm talking about on theological blogs, it is embarrassing and shameful the way that Christians take after each other. That issue of honoring one another, regardless of who they are, what they've done, what they believe, what they've said, is still in place. Not because of anything they've said, or not because of, of that they are more important than us, but because they are. Because they are his children, they are his image bearer. And simply because of that, they deserve honor and respect. What has happened in the context of the male-female thing is that that in the brokenness that we came out of the garden in, we have stepped into male and female relationships and tarnished them and made them bad, made them less than they were intended to be. And so now you see in many movements that women are, they feel that women should elevate themselves against man. 
to try and redeem something they feel like they have lost. And in many places and cases, that is true. But in the context of the local church, we have to realize that we still honor women and esteem them in many, many ways. And that traditions of the church have to be undone and overlooked and worked through to honor them and to put them in the right place as God intended them to be in. But anytime you put a sinful man or a sinful woman in the equation, things get messy. Let's skip on to verse 24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cling to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. In marriage, you see, marriage is God's idea. God take a, took a template and he says, this is what marriage looks like. From the very beginning, you notice that this is not something he was an afterthought. You notice that this is not something he thought, you know what, things are not going so well. We need to insert a new plan. We need to insert a stopgap. We have to put a stint in here to make things work okay. None of that happened. From the very beginning, when he introduced man and woman to to each other, he instituted this thing called marriage. And he instituted it, it happened in a certain way between certain people. In marriage, as all of us know, it is intended that a woman give her husband all that she is and has, and the husband give all that he is and all that he has. The woman gives up her old life. She gives up her old name. She gives up her home. She renounces her father's name. She takes her husband's. Likewise, the husband, he gives his wife everything, his name, all that he stands for, all that he possesses, all of his interests, his body, all of that he gives to her. And they're intended to merge, to become one flesh sexually. And, so it's, and they're intended to become one flesh even to the sense that they are sacrificially giving for the other without reserve and without thought. Let's take a pause. Pop quiz. All right? First question, barbecue is the greatest food on earth. Okay, let me rephrase that. Here's my pop quiz. Barbecue is food. Pittsburgh is in PA. Earth is the third planet from the sun. I had to check that one out. Sex outside of a marriage is sin. American flag is red, white, and blue. Now then, tell me, which of these are facts? You see... There are many where some would say all four, four of the five are facts. Except for some who have gone through certain parts of our educational system that they might not know where Pittsburgh is. They wouldn't be sure of that. <laughs> they wouldn't be sure of that. But there are many in our society that would say, well, four of them are true. Barbecue is food. I don't like it. Pittsburgh is in PA, and I don't like it either. The earth is the third planet for the sun. I've never checked it out for myself, but the scientists tell me so, and I've seen an American flag, and it was red, white, and blue. But that fourth one right there, that one up there about sex being outside of marriage is sin, that's not right because you can't tell me what sin is. I get to define that for myself, and, and if I want to have sex with you, I can have sex with you, and you can't, you're not the boss of me. That one there is opinion. 
You know, that's what religious people believe, but that one's opinion. But the other are, are facts. Those are facts. I agree with you. I have brought with me again, because I've done this before, but it just works, my yardstick. It is, in a sense, is it not, an object or a tool of truth. What, what does this do? Someone talk to me. Just tell me. I know it's, I know it's an, you hate those kind of dumb questions where everyone knows the answer, but work with me, okay? What does it do? Okay, and then why is it important to have a measurement? Why is it important to know that this is 36 inches or one yard? What does it do for us? It standardizes things. Is that what someone said? We're on the same page. Good, that's great. What else does it do? Gives you perspective, right? Right. It also helps us all get to the same place, doesn't it? What would the results be if we don't all agree about how many inches are in a yard? What would the results be? So I say to you, you know what? Let's just say that you, you have the proverbial buried treasure. You need, you need to go 450 yards, and you're going to find the buried treasure. It would be really good if I knew what 450 yards meant to the person who wrote those directions to the treasure were. It would be really good if the person who wrote the treasure map believed the same thing I believe about what 450 yards were going to be. Otherwise, I am going to be wandering all over creation trying to figure out what 450 yards they meant compared to the ones that I understand. Right? It would be utter confusion if we didn't understand it. And that is the case we have today in our culture. Is marriage only between a man and a woman? How many genders are there? Can marriage between be between the same sex? Is homosexuality okay? Is bisexuality okay? I learned terms this week I didn't even know existed. Is pansexual okay? Is gender neutral okay? And the list can go on and on and on. And God's standard, his 36 inches on marriage, says that marriage is between a man and a woman. God's standard on sex says that sex that happens outside of marriage between a man and a woman is sin and unbiblical. God's absolute rule on gender is that he created them male and female. And yet today, I read this, I read this, I can point it to you, there are those who would identify as many as 63 different genders. An Oregon court in June said that a legal gender is now called non-binary. There are Bibles now that are gender-free. We are a confused culture because we don't know how many inches are in a yard. Because we don't know what a male and a female is anymore and who can be married to who. And that's why Thanksgiving is going to be really difficult for so many of us this year. Because what has always been 36 inches is now being argued about because there are people who are taking it and saying, this is my 36 inches and you can't tell me it's not. This is my truth. And for you to tell me that it's different makes you a bigot 
makes you a racist, makes you a homophobe, makes you a hate monger. See, the truth is, is that if you choose to call this 36 inches, it just means we disagree. It doesn't mean I hate you, but it means we disagree. And the problem with that disagreement is that as long as we have two different measurements for a yard or for marriage or for sex, it's difficult. Well, it's just impossible to agree. What are we to do, Christians? Because we are in the crosshairs in our culture and society today for being those who are engendering, who are causing all of this hatefulness to happen because we refuse to give. At least some of us do. I understand that there's one particular mainline denomination that either this year or next year is going to vote on whether or not to ordain gay and homosexual clergy. Even within that denomination, they're having a hard time agreeing upon what is 36 inches. What are we to do, Christians? Because, see, we are having a hard time because we stand in the crosshairs of our culture when our culture says, you can't say that about me. This is the problem for us, is that we can say that about these issues. We can't say it the way we usually do. And that is some of what's come out very evident in the past 10 days. It's been coming out long before that, that the election seemed to shine a light on it, like a magnifying light on our language and our use of the Internet. A lesson I am still learning about. So here we are. Mankind now wants to believe what we want to believe. You know, you think about this. What was the sin of Satan coming out of the garden? I said, I called it, for purposes of our series here, autonomy. He wanted to be autonomous from God. He wanted to say, I will be this, I will do this, and I will not be accountable for my actions. I want to be like God, accountable to in no one. And our culture is saying that right now as well. You can't tell me what my gender is. I can identify it how I want. You can't tell me who I can marry or can't marry. I'll marry who I want. You can't, and you fill in the blank, and our culture and society is doing that. And so whenever we are doing a battle for our autonomy, we are doing a battle with truth, and in particular, God's truth. Anytime we are battling and struggling for our autonomy, for getting to do things our way, without accountability, without repercussion, we are struggling with the truth. We are wrestling with the truth. We are saying that truth, what used to be true, is not true anymore. And I want to be free of that. And I want to define this as 36 inches from now on. Typically, we have about 160 adults in this room or on this campus on a Sunday. So if there's 160 different definitions of 36 inches, what is that going to look like? 
if there's only 10 definitions of 36 inches? What is that going to look like? You hear people say about our youth, but they also say that about us as adults, is that we are confused people. We are confused people because we no longer ascribe to a truth. We are all defining truth for ourselves, And so therefore, the truth that is out there is as many as there are people out there. And what's happening is that some of us are falling into certain umbrellas and saying, this truth is mine, and there's a few of us who agree. But the reason we're confused, the reason that we're becoming increasingly desperate is because we do not ascribe to one one moral authority as being the authority. We are all making our own authority and saying it's mine. Then we are struggling and wrestling and fighting and bickering and posting and marching against anyone and everyone who says, no, you can't do that. When you have that many truths, it is no wonder that we are confused. It is no wonder that our millennials are desperate for something to believe in that is true. We as a nation are that same way. We as people are that same way. There is a new phrase out there. Does anyone know what the Oxford word of the year is? Post-truth. Can you believe that? That is the new Oxford Dictionary word of the year. Post-truth. Read what it means. Relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. Why is it that politicians want concerts instead of discussions about the issues? Because they understand the playing field they're on. They understand that people are not motivated by truth any longer. They're motivated by their emotions and their personal beliefs. Post-truth. There was a, a fantastic article this week that came out and it says this, the fact that whenever, and this is from someone as far as I can tell is not a believer. So it's incredibly insightful. The fact that when everyone defines truth for himself, there are no ties that bind. Listen very closely. The fact is that when everyone defines truth for themselves, there are no ties that bind. If I decide something is true for me based on how I feel, then it's true. Now, you think about that though, but tomorrow I might have chili and I might feel differently. So tomorrow's truth might be with beans. I don't know. This is all I have if I've rejected objective truth. Rejected objective truth. All I have is my subjective experience, my feelings, my natural impulses. These become truth for me, just as your subjective feelings become truth for you. In the end, we are, we are ruled not by a common commitment to truth, which we are all bound to, or a commitment to exercise reason as we pursue truth, but by our own individual feelings. We are bound by our own individual feelings. Right now, there's probably about a hundred different feelings about this sermon in here. Post-truth applies to same-sex marriage, 
to gender, to dignity of women, to all the stuff that comes out of the book of Genesis. But here is the thing, guys. There is one truth. And now for centuries, people have tried to change this truth to make it mean something that it's not. If you want, to, if you want evidence of that, you can just go look up Matthew Vines, who now has written a book that has redefined the entire Bible stand on sex and homosexuality. He has just went out, came out and said and wrote an entire book about what he's redefined what this means. And he's not the first one who's done it. He won't be the last one who's done it. But this is still truth. This is still something we can commit to. This is still something that can give many of us a definition for how to live our lives. And what it means, though, is yielding my feelings, my desires, and difficult for me, my opinions, to this truth. What's incumbent upon us as a church is to prove that we can hold this truth firmly and still exercise love, compassion, mercy on others. Not something we've generated a great reputation for. And I am chief of sinners in that regard. And yet that is how it was given to us. Truth was given to us with compassion and mercy and gentleness. And the same way that we received it is how we're called to dispense it. While there are many who don't agree with this truth, we are called to represent this truth in the same way that Christ represented it, which was with mercy and compassionate and kindness, without judgment, being in disagreement completely. But you, you just think about this, though. The ones who hated him and the ones who wanted to stone him were never the lepers, were never the whores, were never those people. They were not the ones who wanted to stone him. It was the religious people who wanted to stone him. There's something about the way that he dealt with their sin that we need to deal with their sin likewise. And that just takes a living of obedience in our lives to set aside our opinions and our voice and speak with the Holy Spirit working out of us in such a way that we can say, no, I'm sorry. This is not 36 inches. And the one who defines 36 inches is the one who wrote this. And the one who wrote this loves you so much, just as you are. He doesn't care if you say that you're pansexual or gender neutral. He loves you just the way you are. That is our commission as Christians. For we are loved that way. We are loved as gluttons that we are. We are loved as being jealous people as we are. We are loved as being lovers of money as we are. And he loves others the same way he loves you and I. And so it's with that love that we receive that he says, go and love them. Go and preach the truth. 
in love. In love. Father, this morning, I, don't have a, I have the sense that we have no concept of how deeply we are loved. That we have no sense of how much we've been forgiven. That we have no sense of how judgmental we can be. Of how harsh we can be. And yet we are. Father, forgive us. for being so unlike you. I am so grateful that you that your work does not depend on me being exactly like you. I am so grateful that your work does not depend on me being as compassionate as you. But you ask us to step up to that standard. And there are times when in obedience to you and in compassion to others, we step in and we are great ambassadors for you. Father, forgive us for the times we're not. This morning... Your word has taught us, and it has taught us for centuries about what it means to be a man and a woman, what it means to be married, what it means to be a woman, and what value there is in that. Forgive us for messing that up. Forgive us for judging others who have messed that up. Humble us. Humble me. Humble me to love others well like you do and to use the truth as an object of freedom not as a battle axe teach us how we are freed by the truth so that we can give that truth to others it's in your name we pray